Hello, my name is Andrea Saldarriaga. I lead the Investment and Human Rights Project, which is an initiative of the Laboratory for Advanced Research on the Global Economy at the London School of Economics. The Investment and Human Rights Project has been set up to improve our understanding of how to ensure the protection of and respect for human rights in the context of investment. We therefore explore the connections between investment and human rights and the implications that these connections have for the work of governments, companies, investors, financial and legal advisors, arbitrators, civil society and others. Today we are here with Toby Landau QC, an arbitration practitioner with an outstanding record of experience. Toby has participated in more than 300 major international arbitration tribunals worldwide as both counsel and arbitrator. Our talk today is about arbitration and human rights. How can arbitration relate to human rights? So Toby, do you think that human rights are relevant at all for the arbitration practice? I think human rights potentially are extremely significant, extremely important as a component in the investor state arbitration system. To understand the relevance of human rights in investor state arbitration, you have to recall the difference between investor state arbitration and commercial arbitration. Whereas commercial arbitration is just the resolution of an immediate dispute between contracting parties, investor state arbitration requires a tribunal to scrutinize all aspects of sovereign discretion by reference to some very short, brief, broadly framed standards. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a tribunal may have to decide whether uh, the conduct of a government in implementing a particular policy breaches a guarantee against unfair, inequitable treatment. W what does fair and equitable treatment mean? How are you going to calibrate that standard? There's nothing in the treaty to tell you how to calibrate it. Mm -hmm. There's no doctrine of precedent in international law whereby you look to a previous decision and say, well, that's the answer. And so a tribunal is faced with understanding what that concept is of, for example, fair and equitable treatment, mm -hmm. and somehow evaluating the impugned governmental conduct. Well, how do you do that? How do you know whether a government was right um, and proper in implementing, let's say, a health policy? or a policy that impacts upon wages, or a privatization of a water sector. How can you know whether what a government did was, was fair or not? Well, you, you can apply um, contractual expectations, you could apply general principles of good governance, but somewhere along the line, in many of these cases, you will have to grapple with other competing norms. Mm -hmm. And one particular area that crops up in many, not all, but many cases, is human rights. So this is a concerning perspective, what you are presenting in this respect. Um, that means basically that each arbitral tribunal could um, address the issues and understand the issues in a different way, interpret the standards like fair and equitable treatment in a different way, in each different case? Absolutely, and that's what we've seen over previous years. Mm -hmm. And this uh, raises a lot of uh, different types of problem. It's a problem in terms of advising on this area, knowing whether or not somebody could bring a claim 
So it's, it's a great uncertainty for investors. Uh, it's a problem with actually regulating the process itself because there's nothing to stop tribunals departing from previous tribunals. And ultimately, this is a problem of legitimacy of the whole process because those who look at this process uh, and, and see a range of different, often inconsistent outcomes, uh, question what this process is, in fact. And of course, this is very, very significant. We're not talking about disputes which just come and go and can be forgotten. Some of them are like that. Others bear upon uh, a government policy, and that policy may impact upon any number of different lives. And that makes life for states very difficult because if there is not a clear understanding of, for example, what fair and equitable treatment is, there is then not certainty for the state on whether the way in which they are um, deciding or uh, undertaking a certain decision would then probably fit into the uh, interpretation of a particular tribunal. For, for sure. This is an area which uh, is, is very significant in terms of state conduct. Uh -huh. By that I mean states uh, do not want to be the recipients of investor claims under treaties. No state wants to be brought under a treaty to an international process that has an impact upon diplomatic relations. It may have an impact on a state's credit standing. And it may have a direct impact uh, deterring future foreign investment. So states want to avoid these claims. How do they avoid the claims without knowing what the limits are of particular treaties? And at the moment, they cannot know that for sure. Uh, and they can't know what are the limits of their so-called regulatory space. What are they free to regulate and what are they not free to regulate? So the phenomena that arises out of this is what's become known as regulatory chill. That is, that if a state thinks that a particular policy might excite claims, or they might be deterred away from that policy. But that's a great concern because then the decisions of the state to regulate in important areas like human rights would be determined by whether they trigger or not a possible investment case. Yes. I mean, one, one mustn't overstate this because uh -huh. it's at the moment unmeasured and it's not quite clear how scientifically it, it could ever be measured. Uh -huh. And people have different views on it. Um, it may be that some states are more sensitive than other states to, to this issue. Mm -hmm. As a practitioner, I can tell you that there are states who are now seeking advice from council in advance of promulgating particular policies in order to know whether or not there's a risk of an investor state claim. Now, there are many other governments that don't do that yet, uh, but I think this is something which one cannot exclude. Uh, it is a dynamic which I think is very, very real uh, and it's something which um, should trouble most people in this, in this field because the field is, is so unpredictable at the moment. It has, this, it has these adverse uh, impacts. Yeah. And it has many different um, aspects to that. And a question also of the democratic process internally for, the, for legislate, for reg to regulate. Okay. Uh, but also, of course, it goes beyond just legislation or legislating. Uh, we're talking about questioning every aspect of sovereign activity that could go towards state responsibility. That is, anything a state does that under international law would make it responsible. So that's any activity by, for example, the executive. Mm -hmm. But it's also any activity by the legis legislature. So the passing of a law can be scrutinized by an international tribunal. And it goes to the judiciary. 
So the activity of a, for example, a Supreme Court in a particular country could be reviewed and second-guessed by a private tribunal. I say private because they're private individuals. Mm -hmm. A tribunal sitting in an investor state case. And how attuned are those deciding these cases, those arbitrators, to this regulatory process, to this context in which the decisions are taken? It varies. Okay. Some are attuned and some are positively switched off. There are those who conduct this process still through the prism of commercial arbitration. Commercial arbitration, there's no tradition of looking at these wider interests and wider um, non-parties. There is no wider audience. In investor state arbitration, there are those who are now alive to this wider audience and this wider impact. Um, and there are those that are not. But, the, but there's a structural problem because um, we are so wedded at the moment to the commercial arbitration procedural model, there simply isn't a process at the moment, in my mind, that effectively accommodates all the wider interests that are at stake. What kind of human rights issues have you encountered in practice? Uh, quite a number of different types of issues. Mm -hmm. uh, they all focus upon the calibration of broad treaty standards. For example, um, fair and equitable treatment, non-discrimination, expropriation. And they, uh, one comes across these issues when you are deciding whether a government has acted appropriately in an area that might impact on human rights. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, the conduct of a government in privatizing water supply um, that could affect a particular um, state water utility and it could affect a foreign investor who is invested in that utility mm -hmm. but it course, could also affect hundreds of thousands of water users. Um, cases on um, the policy of particular governments uh, of non-discrimination against racial um, subdivisions within, within a society. Um, cases on discrimination, um, government approaches to avoid discrimination. Cases on the allocation of resources. Any number of yeah. cases. What kind of resources? Uh, any any kind resources? of limited, the allocation of limited natural resources, mm -hmm. uh, which might, um, might discriminate between different groups within a particular community. Uh, these would be claims by foreign investors who have invested in a particular resource and are looking to safeguard their interests, where a government may have implemented a policy to safeguard other people's interests. Okay. So, for example, expropriation policies, nationalization policies, we see a lot of that in Latin America. Mm -hmm. There are governments that have a, a um, policy implemented to nationalize major industries in order to safeguard local supply and local well-being. And that pitches the interests of the population directly against the interests of foreign investors who have been expropriated. Interesting. And so then in, uh, in terms of who, who is better uh, placed to bring these human rights issues into the arbitration proceedings? Now, structurally, this is a problem. There are only a limited number of um, people in the process mm -hmm. who could introduce human rights issues. You could look at the investor party, but most often it's not in their interests mm -hmm. to raise any human rights issue. They're simply bringing their own claim, which they're pursuing in their own interests. You could then look at the state party. Now, you'd think that the host state normally would be the guarantor of human rights, and it would be in their interests 
uh, in, in, in competition to the claims against them okay. to raise human rights issues. The reality is that states don't always have the best internal organization to actually bring these issues into the arbitration. Very often they're not focused on wider interest groups. Very often their representation in these cases is limited because of budget restrictions and very often it's chaotic. So actually you don't get all interests channeled through um, the, the government representation into the process. Mm -hmm. Then you can look at the tribunal. Well, can the tribunal itself take the initiative to ask questions and explore, investigate these human rights issues? Some tribunals are alive to these issues. Many are simply not. Many arbitrators have no human rights background. Many arbitrators think it's wrong to be proactive, that they should not take the initiative and bring in any issue that's not been argued. Um, and there are different views about that. So lastly, there's the possibility of non-parties who know about the process coming forward and actually introducing these issues. And experience on this has been patchy. Um, it's so far been in the hands of uh, a limited number of NGOs mm -hmm. who unfortunately are seen, some of them at least, as, as lobbyists or entities that come with an agenda. And so they may not be the best people to actually put forward these issues. So who would be then? Ultimately, my, my sense is that there has to be a change in mindset, okay. uh, particularly amongst arbitrators, to wake up uh, in the cases where, where, where it's relevant uh, to the possibility of other interests. And then to actually look to invite in, where appropriate, with, with restrictions where necessary, people who can actually help the tribunal. That is not an intervener, which is the process we have at the moment, mm -hmm. by, for example, a lobbyist, mm -hmm. but a true amicus curiae or a friend of the process who may be able to come in and, and actually vocalize and reflect what the other interests are. How would then this interest be articulated in a way in which is useful for the tribunal and for the resolution of the dispute at stake? It, it could be articulated as a submission, written okay. submission, or even an oral presentation uh, from another perspective. So you get the investor perspective, you get the state perspective, and then you would have uh, an, a true amicus mm -hmm. actually explaining to the tribunal what is the wider impact of these issues? What, who is out there who might be affected adversely by a determination? Mm -hmm. And this, this is, is very important in a number of different ways. Firstly, it lends to a, a fairer resolution of the dispute. Okay. But secondly, it actually helps the process by enhancing its legitimacy. Because at the moment, we have, we have an increasing backlash against this area. People look at determinations, they look at awards, and they say this was improper because it didn't take into account these other interests. And so they question the, the legitimacy of the arbitration mechanism. So why not resolve that by foreshadowing the criticism? Why not bring into the process those critics before you get to the stage of a determination and let them have their day in, in, in a hearing. And could this interest and this participation be channeled through the existing institutional setup for the arbitration? Yes. It could. It could. People trumpet arbitration uh, as, a, as a great process because it's flexible. Mm -hmm. So procedurally, there's nothing to stop a tribunal letting in um, people, other interest groups, mm -hmm. uh, as long as there's no specific agreement otherwise between the parties. 
um, to let them in and to accommodate them. It's not so much the existing institutions or the existing rules that are the problem. The problem is the existing mindset. Because arbitrators, whilst they carry a commercial arbitration model with them, are resistant. And they, they do not want to complicate the process. They think this is a minefield, it would make it expensive, it would make it complicated and unwieldy and unsafe as a process. And in, investors often don't want to complicate it either. Fabio, what do you think is then the role of the arbitration tribunal with pres when presented with um, human rights issues? The, I think the role of an arbitration tribunal, firstly, is to recognize its mandate uh, and its position in contrast to a commercial arbitral tribunal. It has to see that its determination will impact, could impact, beyond the immediate parties. So it has to recognize a wider potential audience. That's the first thing. Once it's recognized the possibility of a wider audience, then, in my view, to fairly properly discharge its mandate under the treaty, <clears throat> it needs to accommodate those competing concerns. Mm -hmm. And it has to do that by listening to them and possibly uh, applying competing norms. So in concrete terms, if a tribunal is asked to apply a fair and equitable treatment uh, guarantee in a treaty, and there's a possibility that in so doing, <clears throat> it might impact upon human rights, mm -hmm. then I think it's part of the tribunal's obligation to understand that potential impact and to see whether or not that feeds back into the calibration of the standard, the application of the standard. Interesting. And you said, you mentioned that it's a matter of mindset. So that would be the mindset for the arbitrators. What about the mindset of the parties, probably in particular the state? Uh, changing rules changing laws uh, and practices uh, is easy compared to changing mindsets. It's one of the hardest things to do. Um, and, it, and it can't be done by uh, amending laws or amending rules. It has to be a process of education where people wake up to this issue, which to my mind they so far have not woken up to. Um, they need to be aware about the different nature of investor state arbitration Mm -hmm. They need to be aware that there are some cases, not all, but some cases where human rights is a very important dimension. Uh, would that help to change, for example, the treaties, the wording of the treaties? There are two points in time that one need to look at. The mm -hmm. first point in time is the initial negotiation of the treaty. Mm -hmm. The second point in time is the actual determination of a dispute under that treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, human rights has an impact at both stages. The first stage is out of the hands of arbitrators. It's in the hands of treaty negotiators, and there's a question of uh, their mindset as to catering for possible other interests that may be impacted by mm -hmm. the instrument. I think people are waking up to that increasingly, and treaties are being drafted with more care, but there's a long way to go on that. Okay. At the second point in time, uh, arbitrators need to be aware uh, that there is a, this possible broader impact uh, that their decisions may have. Now, if their mindset does change, then the existing rules and the existing law is sufficiently flexible for them to make directions to take into account these other interests. There's no impediment at the moment to them doing so. I'd like to ask you if you could share with us some ideas about how to um, address the challenges that 
um, the existence or the occurrence of human rights issues in an arbitration might pose? Uh, I think there are um, a number of different points that one needs to focus on. Mm -hmm. uh, firstly, w one which I've repeated frequently is, is the question of mindset. Mindsets only get changed by education and discussion. There needs to be a more of a discourse uh, with arbitrators who are active in this field in order to unite them with other areas which, in my experience, they are unconnected with, and that is human rights specialists, mm -hmm. or people who specialize in other norms. We seem to be operating in parallel universes at the moment with people who know about human rights and understand about these issues on the one hand and arbitrators on the other, and, and the two don't speak to each other. So I think the first thing that has to happen is a uniting of these different fields. It's not to say that arbitration will get revolutionized, it's not to say that every case would be different, but it's to pick up on those cases where it is significant and where arbitrators would do well to draw on the expertise and the perspective uh, of others. I think once that's done and arbitrators' minds have been broadened, um, we need to increase the capacity uh, within the arbitration process to handle these issues. And that includes perhaps broadening the field of arbitrators, uh, perhaps drawing on arbitrators, if possible, developing an arbitration expertise amongst people who come from different backgrounds. And also to enhance um, the ability of or, or develop people who can come and actually address tribunals on these issues. It's all very well saying, well, we're open to people coming to help us, yeah. but there have to be people who are available and willing and able to actually um, come and address tribunals and inject in the arbitral process um, this whole other interest area. Thank you.